Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinnon. On today's show, we'll welcome Evan Weinberger, Law360's senior banking reporter, who will walk us through a case challenging the constitutionality of the government's takeover of insurance giant AIG after the 2008 financial crisis. We'll also be joined by Abraham Musacco to take us through the legal industry developments from the week. And at the end of the show, we'll talk about something that's been a viral sensation, Starbucks unicorn frappuccino. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So, guys, there's so much news to get to this week. I just want to throw out there what I think we're going to talk about. Comey's all over the news and his recent firing. Mm -hmm. We've got Donald Trump appointing um, some judges and the big backlog that he still needs to get through. Yeah. And then we also have a huge Dewey verdict. And that's something we talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So we've got to give the update. I was talking to Bill before we started rolling. And it was, you know, we're batting around the idea of like, oh, we should probably talk about Comey and then... You know, the, 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 it would be the, like it, it. It is moving too fast. Yeah. We can't do it on a podcast that we record on Thursday. It's like it the, doesn't work. The snakes are exploding out of the can in slow motion. <laughs> right. That's what's going on. Anyway, well, it's like trying to eat soup on a treadmill. Say for everyone listening to the podcast, which you know will come out after. Um, probably more developments well, have happened, yeah, yeah. is that we do have reporters on the Comey case. We do have some takes. We have some takes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you go on Law360.com, uh, I wrote one. So a couple of people in our DC bureau worked on one. Mine is basically like a 900-word uh, dispatch of sanctions lawyers giving me the shoulder shrug emoji, <laughs> but uh, it's very good. There's, lots, there's, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty on the Russia sanctions. But we do have some Trump stuff we can talk about. We do. Let's transition it's into a nice, that. Uh, yes. It's a nice, yeah. nice transition. Well, Trump made a lot of news for a high-profile firing this week, but he's also done some hiring. President Trump has sort of begun chipping away at the vast number of vacancies on the federal judiciary. He named 10 new judges, five to various appeals courts and five to district courts. So a lot of Trump's nominations for cabinet positions and other positions have been somewhat controversial. I mean, there's been some sort of middle-of-the-road folks, but there have been, you know, the Betsy Devos of the world and mm-hmm. um, sort of place these folks that he's nominated, you know, in on the spectrum for me? I mean, are they pretty in the judicial mainstream? The consensus seems to be, yeah. I mean, as you said, there's been a lot about not not just the appointments, but the whole presidency. That's a sure. little unorthodox. Sure. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Uh, I talked to Andrew Strickler, who joined us on the show last week, and I've sort of taken the temperature of some other attorneys. And it seems like this batch of 10 judges that he nominated is fits the bill of much uh, that that any other uh, Republican president might have done. Yeah. Um, and, I, and Andrew yeah. did a really good job for us. Of, he did, yeah. He wrote a story that essentially rounded up key information about all 10 of them. So yeah. if people want to do a deep dive, they can do that. But Definitely. hopefully we can give like an overview take of a few of them. Definitely. And well, and just I just to put a button on Bill's question, I mean, between this sort of slate and there's lots left to do, uh, but then also, you know, Gorsuch was, you know, something that was sort of people were like, huh, that seems to make a lot of sense. He was on some other short lists. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of seems like to whatever extent Trump is going to like take risks or upend political norms, seems like the judiciary might not be uh, an area where he does that. So give us um, yeah, you know, I give got us some, a few uh, of these folks who's the who, who's notable on this list well I well first of all I want, I want to run down some numbers I did like a by the numbers Ooh, segment. I like that. we've got uh, so of the 10 again there's a total of 10 we have six first-time judges plucked from either law firms hmm. or academia it's interesting uh, we have four former SCOTUS clerks 
That we makes have, sense. Yeah, we have two Federalist Society members. You also see, makes sense. See what I'm saying here about like the normal profile of a Republican batch of judges? Sure. Uh, and then also one former Law 360 Rising star, if you can oh, believe yeah. it. Yes. I'm glad we predict things accurately. <laughs> or we put him on this path. Who knows? Was it cause? Was it, uh, you know? I would is, like to think the, that every time we call someone a rising star, we have propelled them to glory. <laughs> this is like a judicial Ouroboros here. It's like, where does it start? Where does it finish? Uh, the two that we have the sort of the most book on um, are... Joan Larson, who was named to the Sixth Circuit, Mm -hmm. and David Strass, uh, who was named to the Eighth Circuit. Uh, Larson is a Michigan Supreme Court judge, Mm -hmm. and Strass is a Minnesota Supreme Court judge. And those two judges were on his Supreme Court shortlist. So there's quite a lot of... at, at, At that time, before he picked Gorsuch, people were sort of parsing through what they might bring to the bench. Uh, mm-hmm. Just from what I was able to uh, extract, I found a 2014 dissent that Strass issued from, again, from the Minnesota Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. This dealt with a murder case and the constitutionality of the state's sentencing laws. Mm-hmm. And he basically said sort of, he took a very sort of non-controversial position, but it informed sort of his legal mindset. He said, you know, he thought the statute was unconstitutional, but he thought that the majority sort of went too far in trying to rewrite the statute. Mm-hmm. And he wrote, amending statutes is and always been the legislature's job. Our our job is to, you know, sever the unconstitutional provisions and, you know, send the rest back. Yeah. Again, this is not it's a... It's kind of Scalia-esque in Yeah, in and this is not, you know, I mean, it's just, it's sort of a, a missive against judicial overreach. Sure. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, Lar- Anybody else yeah. uh, notable on the list? Larson, again, who uh, has been appointed to the Sixth Circuit, she wrote an Ohio law review paper in 2004 that talked about Lawrence versus Kansas, which was the Supreme Court decision that struck down uh, Texas's uh, sodomy laws for homosexual activity. She didn't Mm -hmm. wade into the merits there, but she did say that the Rehnquist court relied a little too much on foreign and international law when Mm -hmm. it was sort of trying to arrive at some, do some like moral fact finding. She was Mm -hmm. basically being pretty territorial and saying like, our laws are our laws. Um, So I thought that was Pretty interesting. And also, just to put a button on it, the uh, former Law 360 rising star is, oh, yeah. is uh, Kevin Newsom, who is an Alabama appellate specialist. He's mm. uh, been named to the 11th Circuit. He's at Bradley Arendt Bolt Cummings. He was a former Alabama Solicitor General, so he's argued four cases b- before the Supreme Court. Hmm. Pretty well-respected jurist, from what I could gather. Um, lots of work yet to do. Uh, Mike McInoney and the D.C. Bureau reported there's still 129 vacant seats. So yeah. many. So... Uh, uh, yeah, we had a great yeah. graphic in that story that sort of showed those numbers, but showed where all the vacancies are. And it, when you look at the graphic, it's a bit overwhelming. I mean, there's just so many left yeah. to be filled. Now that we've talked about some judicial nominations, let's turn to a big verdict we've been waiting for. A couple of weeks ago, we had some reporters on talking about the second trial for Dewey LaBeouf. And Bill, we've gotten that verdict. Can you tell us about it? We have. On Monday, uh, the jurors returned a split verdict in the long-running case after five days of deliberation. They found the former CFO, Joel Sanders, uh, they convicted him uh, on two felony fraud charges, but they acquitted Executive Director Stephen DeCarmine. So for uh, people who maybe didn't hear our earlier podcast or haven't been following along, what's sort of the, the quick explanation of what so, this was all sure. about. Good luck with that one, Bill. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah. Such as it best. is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, if you haven't been following me along, Dewey was an elite big law firm founded in 2007, right before the financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, in 2012, sort of under that pressure, went bust. 
And um, a few years later, 2014, several of its top executives were indicted for accounting fraud, for sort of fudging the numbers to cover the firm's failing financial picture. There was a first trial held a couple of years back, uh, but after a very long and very expensive trial, uh, the juries returned a mistrial. So that was a big black eye for the Manhattan DA. They came back and uh, brought a second case, and there was a trial that wrapped up uh, late last month. And we've That's had... That's doing in about 40 seconds, by that the way. Was good. So, so, that was so really good. So good job, Bill. Yeah. And we've had um, several of our reporters analyzing how the second trial turned out with the split verdict. And one of the takeaways that I think we can all agree is is not that unexpected is that the DA made a really good choice by streamlining the second case. And that led to some of the success in convicting at least one person. Yeah. One of our courts reporters, uh, Daniel Siegel, he wrote a really interesting piece discussing how they had streamlined the case, that they had gotten rid of defendants, that they had gotten rid of, I mean, partially they got rid of defendants because they couldn't pin anything on certain people, but <laughs> yeah. uh, they got rid of some, they got, the first trial had like 119 counts or yeah. something. Um, yeah, ridiculous. So they got rid of a bunch of those and he spoke to a bunch of former prosecutors who said, you know, this was the right way to do this. They focused on the story they wanted to tell. They focused on the defendants that they wanted to get. And I mean, it was a split verdict. They didn't get everything, but they at least got some win out of it. I would wonder if I hate to oversimplify, especially on something as complex as this. But I think I talked about this when we talked when we discussed a couple of weeks back about that lawyer who, uh, you know, doctored his thing to write to write a longer mm-hmm. brief. There's yeah. probably I'm sure that there is some like sort of like overall lesson in here that like. Don't Less throw too much more. at the that, that don't throw too much at the wall. I think I've said like every time I go to a judicial conference, there's a judge who's oh, now this is different. This is a jury trial. I understand that, but like just a general sort of well, practices. It's something know? we talk about a lot as journalists, which Simpler, is tell the you story, have you know? to tell a story in a way that you know your mom or your grandma could read some complicated legal sure. thing and understand it. And you have to imagine that if you're in the first trial and you're a juror, it was just so complicated to understand what happened. And this sort of the, what you guys are talking about sort of plays out from what our courts reporter Jody Godoy reports uh, after speaking with a bunch of the jurors when they got out. Mm-hmm. She wrote a really interesting yeah, piece where she interviewed a bunch of people who sat on the jury and they basically said there was this really clear, easy to understand story about Sanders. that uh, He's his, the one that got convicted. Exactly. And his quote name was on everything. Um, uh, one juror said they did a much better job with the Sanders case. The On the flip side, the, the uh, DeCarmine, who was acquitted, one juror that Jody spoke to said that there was essentially no proof shown to them from the state that DeCarmine had done what they were saying. So it's that, you know, that simple story really sort of the jurors said that that's what connected with them. And even with all of those steps that they took, I mean, they, they clearly went back to the drawing board mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But even with that, there was the, the other sort of broad takeaway here, I think, is that, you know, there there's a certain threshold of person that it's just really hard to pin stuff on. Exactly. I mean, and it's it's, you know, it's it shows in this case. But I think in all the in, you know, a lot of people talked in the wake of the financial crisis. Why weren't more executives held yeah. accountable? Because mm-hmm. it's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. So Stuart Bishop, uh, who we had on the show two weeks ago, wrote a really interesting piece about how this illustrates just how difficult it is to get criminal charges against C-suite executives to stick, that they are insulated from the decisions yeah. that form the basis of, of a lot of crimes. And 
that, you know, that, that even on a smaller entity like a law firm where there is a lot more interaction, one would think that the best they could do was a CFO and that this executive director was just a, a bridge too far. It was just too hard. Yeah. I would wonder if we gave the, I mean, this is probably some speculation or whatever. I wonder if, if we were to give like the, give the DA like some truth serum if like if they if they really would say like this is really like the best we could do because it seems that way to me I mean well, I don't I mean in fairness to them this is a success for them they had a mistrial oh, totally and yeah. then they didn't get both of the the people they wanted but they did get one conviction so it is a win yeah, yeah. I think I mean I think compared to all over the years all the cases that weren't brought in white collar crimes that <laughs> right you know bringing it and you know, taking your lumps for how you did it, but getting one conviction out of it is better than what we've seen from a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's a perfect place to remind people to read Stuart's story, which basically outlines exactly how hard it is. And yeah, it's a really story. good piece. Yeah. 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 Thanks, guys. Awesome. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with Evan Weinberger, Law360's senior banking reporter, to discuss a lawsuit about the $85 billion bailout of AIG after the 2008 financial crisis. But up first, a look at legal industry happenings with Abraham Musacco and the Legal Industry Minute. Thanks, Amber. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has announced that the legal services industry gained over 1,000 jobs in April, bringing the first positive growth in 2017. In addition, Two law firms have rolled out experiments in staff management in the past week. Allen & Overy has announced the use of a new pilot program to evaluate associates, counsel, and support staffers in three of its regions. The program sheds the traditional annual appraisal system in favor of one with the focus on regular communication. And finally, Reed Smith has rolled out new benefits aimed at employees returning from maternity leave. The programs include a four-week online course designed to help ease their return to work and resources for breastfeeding mothers. This has been the week in the legal industry. For our main story this week, we're going to take it back in time to the 2008 financial crisis and specifically to the infamous $85 billion government takeover of flailing insurance giant AIG. The reason we're talking about it this week is because on Tuesday, a federal appeals court tossed out a ruling that the takeover was unconstitutional. It's the latest defeat in a years-long battle fought by AIG's former boss, Hank Greenberg, who claims that AIG shareholders are owed up to $40 billion in damages over the takeover. Today to talk us through it is Evan Weinberger. He's our senior banking reporter. Welcome, Evan. Hi, thanks for having me. So the financial crisis was a long time ago. It's been about nine years. So I think we all need a refresher. What happened to AAG? And then can you tell us who Hank Greenberg is and why he's been fighting the government? Get us up to speed. Will do. AIG was, at the time in 2008, the world's largest insurance company. But it had a little time bomb in the middle of it in that it had a small unit that was deeply involved in credit default swaps. So in the wake of Lehman Brothers' failure in September 2008, before that, the collapse of Bear Stearns and other just various financial stress, mm-hmm. it was being it was having billions of dollars drained out of it uh, due to those uh, bad credit default swap bets. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately after uh, Lehman Brothers failed in September 2008, the government stepped in and said, we're going to help you out. Mm-hmm. But the way the government helped them out 
They offered $85 billion in loans and said, we're taking over. We want 80% of the stock. We want to get rid of your executives. We're in charge here. <laughs> right. So who is Hank Greenberg? Tell us about him and how he's been upset by this action. Maurice R. Hank Greenberg. Hammer and, and, Hank. Right. Hammer it, and Hank. Get it right. That's right. <laughs> he was AIG's CEO for decades, but he left the company in 2005 under a serious cloud. There were SEC investigations into uh, some reinsurance contracts that it was involved in. He has a long-running battle he's, with former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. He's quite the character, right? Oh, he's, yes. Yeah, he I is. remember when this was going on, he became sort of like the de facto face of yeah. Like, yeah, all this is, kind of stuff. He is one of, he's, you know, known for irascibility and for fighting everybody. And so he didn't, he didn't love the bailout the way that it worked. At the time, he kind of loved the bailout because he didn't <laughs> I mean, lose all of his money. it's a relative thing, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Right. Right. He but didn't I, lose yeah. all of his money. He didn't like the terms. Now, he left in 2005 and started this company called Star International. Mm -hmm. Star International became the largest single shareholder in AIG. That means he wasn't on the board. He, he was no longer chairman of the board, but he had a lot of power and a lot of say with the board of AIG. The company voted to uh, move forward with the bailout. Everybody except for one member of its board of directors approved it. Government stepped in. The executives were gone. The government owned eighty percent of the company, and the the AIG issued new shares and uh, diluted all of the other shareholders. Lost a lot of value. So, how does the ball but, get rolling on the on right. the litigation here? Does In two thousand eleven, uh, Greenberg sued the government, uh, saying that you violated my rights under Article Five of the Constitution. You illegally took my property, <laughs> um, and uh, violated, and the Federal Reserve violated some statutes that, in its bailout authority, basically he said, you made the terms of our bailout loan at AIG far stronger than any of the other companies that received bailouts in 2008 and 2009. What a way to say thank you for the, uh, for the, for the bailout. I'm sure yeah. the government loved getting oh. sued for, yeah. Everybody was shocked when it happened, mm -hmm. and you know, ultimately... He at least partially won the case, which was surprising to just. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah so, hang on, yeah, yeah, because like, because we all we all sort of chuckled when you right. said, uh, you know, he's going after the government for you know this the the temerity they had to mm -hmm. uh, you know give him eighty five billion dollars, but uh, I, apparently at some level some court bought this, yes. Right, he took this court this case to the court of federal claims, which is not really where you have interesting cases usually, <laughs> um, and eventually a judge there said, "Why, yes, you do have." a valid claim under the Constitution and under this Federal Reserve uh, statute, they did act improperly. The terms were too tough. He did not, however, issue a damages ruling in uh So in he didn't favor. get those $40 billion. He wanted $40 he wanted. billion. Dollars. The judge basically said, dude, you would have had nothing if <laughs> right. they hadn't stepped right. in. Right, which is what I would have said as right. well. Uh, but, so, but so it was a moral victory for, it was for a him, moral right? Victory. And sort of a moral defeat for the, for the government, I have well, to imagine. Well, yeah, and it also, I mean... It really had the potential to restrict the government's ability to respond to a crisis. Right. Yeah, damages aside, I mean, if you if, yeah. if, if a court says, like, you, you overstepped your bounds here, it creates a problem. Right, it does create a problem. Yeah. So that brings us up to Tuesday right. and the most recent ruling. So mm -hmm. what did the appellate-level court say? The appellate-level court said, well, first it said, no damages. Um, <laughs> Again, right. Help firm on that. Yeah. 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 Help firm on that. But it also said that it reversed the lower court ruling not on the merits of the case. Instead, it said that... Greenberg and his company Star didn't have the authority to bring the case. 
They were not AIG. You could only bring the case if you were AIG. AIG had elected not to participate in the suit, despite a lot of pressure from Greenberg and other outside forces to do it. They probably chose not to do so because it looks terrible to do. They could. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And also, I mean, this is a sigh of relief for the government uh, in their future power to help when a crisis happens again. Right. Well, yeah. So, sort of walk us walk us through that here. That that I mean, because it seems to me like if 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 they you know if a court held that this kind of action that they took in the AIG case is um, is unconstitutional, that it would really uh, you know handcuff the government if if and perhaps when this kind of thing happens again. Theoretically, yeah. Um, I mean, everybody kind of assumes in a in a crisis situation the government would step in with a bailout anyway. Sure. Deal with though, some litigation later. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then just justify every action that they took through the uh, th- through the courts afterwards. I mean, this case did have a lot of discovery. I mean, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke was called to testify. Lots of their high-profile people were mm-hmm. called to testify. Uh, there was a lot of discovery that had a lot of you know really unpleasant facts about the way that this went down come out for the government. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they've won at the federal circuit because Greenberg didn't have the right to sue. So is Greenberg going to appeal this latest ruling? Yes. Uh, within hours, his attorney, he, David Boys of Boys, Schiller, and Flexner, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, put out a statement saying, we're taking this to the Supreme Court. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's not letting this one go. No. Um, so what do we think the odds are there? The Supreme Court doesn't take a lot of, of cert petitions. What's well, your feeling on that? My feeling is that, yeah, I've spoken to a few people about this who are outside observers, and the feeling I get is that nobody knows whether the Supreme Court will take it there's not a circuit split. There are other it's cases. Such where, a, yeah. There are other cases stemming from the 2008 financial crisis about the government actions with regards to financial companies, um, but the government's won all those cases. Mm-hmm. So there hasn't really been any kind of circuit split for the court to take on. Not a lot of room for the justices to slide. Right. In. Yeah. They have an interest in, in taking these cases before, but more on sort of real property rather than stock issues and yeah. bailout cases. So don't know. Most people I've spoken with said that they don't think that the Supreme Court would reverse it, but it would definitely, like, Greenberg's arguments would definitely get some positive uh, hearing from Justice Alito, probably Justice Gorsuch, probably Justice yeah. Thomas. So let's assume that, that the justices turn it down, though, and say, and, and you know, this was the last gasp for, for Greenberg when it comes to the AIG bailout. Are there any other sort of long sort of trails from the financial crisis that are still left over that are kind of like this? Well, there is still litigation over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm. Uh, Haven't they, heard those names in a while. Yes. <laughs> ah, so you don't cover the I I hear them all it's like the I'm time. living in my mom's basement again. Right. Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, the, they, they, there is an, a vicious... Twitter fight that over over the uh, bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So basically, 2008, those two government-sponsored mortgage giants collapsed as well. Mm-hmm. But because they were part, sort of part of the government, sort of private companies, they were taken into government conservatorship, where mm-hmm. they've been ever since under the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Um, pretty soon after that, the Obama Treasury Department and the FHFA said all of the profits that those companies have, and they still have a profit now, um, will be swept into the Treasury Department to pay for the bailout. Yeah, shareholders uh, don't mostly, love that. No. Shareholders <laughs> don't love that, and they're hedge funds, and so they were. They were most of these hedge funds uh, bought the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shares after it went into conservatorship, so mm-hmm. they knew okay. what was up. 
um, they knew that this was a potential possibility. But they were making the gamble on they it. They were making not a gamble out. on it. Yeah. So they um, challenged they challenged that move in the same way that Greenberg challenged the, yeah, the I mean, IG. Yeah, a little bit different because of the government sure. uh, government sponsored aspect of it. Yeah. Know, they were sort of government entities, but again, you know. Taking, yeah, I mean, taking this stuff on balance, Evan, you've been on the beat for a really long time, yeah. and I think you're in a position to to sort of give us like a diagnosis about, you know, sort of almost a decade on here. Where are we at in terms of the sort of legal like, like consensus on what the government can and can't do? Well, and stuff I, like think, this? I think, you know, the D.C. Circuit ruled against the shareholders in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in uh, February yeah. um, for the government there. You have the federal circuit here mm-hmm. uh, ruling for the government. I think that you know, courts are sort of siding with the government and saying, in a crisis, you have to be able to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we might not necessarily like that you did respond, but you have to be able to be flexible in, in the way that you handle things. And mm-hmm. some companies, you know, might need more of a more of a stick to hit them with uh, in, <laughs> on their bailout terms as opposed to other companies. Yeah. But it looks like the government, at least for now, for now. can rest easy, yeah. that they have all this authority. Mm-hmm. Thanks for explaining a really complicated topic to us, Evan. Oh, thanks for having awesome. me. Thanks, and Evan. Everybody should check out Evan's further reporting. Go to law360.com. He's got a feature about this exact topic that um, will have come out right around the time this yeah, podcast he, He's given us so, a preview, as I understand. Yeah. He filed a couple minutes before he got in here. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. Speak. So this is a perfect thing to go look at on our website. Thanks right. again, Evan, for being Thank with you. us. we like to end our show with something a bit offbeat. And this week we're going to talk about Starbucks and that unicorn frappuccino, which I almost called coffee drink, but I'm not sure that's actually true. It's yeah. a, a sugar drink. Right. I mean, I think you're being a little liberal with the word drink. But okay. <laughs> so why are we talking about it on a legal podcast? So to catch everyone up, Starbucks last month released a limited run unicorn frappuccino. It was a... Despite the name, it had no coffee in it. It was a sugary sort of milk uh, drink. It was kind of gross, if if you're asking me. But it, but it was, was very pretty, and that was the point. Exactly, it was it was made to be put on Instagram. It was yeah. a melted popsicle, essentially. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they Maybe were sued this week. I'm sorry, last week by a little coffee shop in the Williamsburg, the very trendy Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, claiming a single store, claiming that they. Uh, back last December, started selling the unicorn latte and that it was the same thing. It was a play on the fact that it had no coffee. It was hmm. m- bright, multicolored. It, it looks very similar. Can at, we all admit we would expect the unicorn latte to originate in Williamsburg? Yes. Okay. It, 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 that checks Bill, out. Bill, you used to live in Williamsburg? I sure did, guys. Did you ever... Did you have one? I didn't. I don't <gasps> know if the end was there. So the coffee shop is called The End. I don't remember if it was, you know, there, it was there or... Okay. I don't know. Well, anyway. So anyway, uh, they sued this week and they claim that essentially i mean they claim that the name itself is is yeah. is too similar mm-hmm. um but that that you know that the name used on this almost identical concept drink that it it violates the very thing that trademark law is supposed to protect against that consumers being confused that they're going to see right. this and think but what's interesting is they say that it's reverse confusion that normally if i'm selling something and you use my name i'm concerned that that you are taking my goodwill, right? That mm-hmm. you're taking my customers. What they're actually arguing, which is sort of a, a, a like a little weird theory under the law, you can argue that you are selling something under my name, 
Yeah. But you are so big and powerful uh-huh. that you're making everyone think that my drink, that my product is actually offered by you. This is such a hipster argument. Yes. Of course, this nice. is Williamsburg. This so, is... I am really unique, guys, so that's exactly, don't yes. get the stink of your big corporation yeah, on my drink. Get your yes. corporate taint off my coffee. Right? Well, so their lawyer released a statement right when the when the case was, was being filed that said, we brought this lawsuit to protect a local business from having its valuable intellectual property taken by a global corporation. Those evil global corporations. Well, and it's funny that you should say that because they are represented by a large sort of elite law firm, uh, this, this tiny Which coffee one? shop. They are represented by Boys Schiller. Uh, so it's you know you see you see these on on my beat I cover trademark law a lot you see a lot of these little companies suing big companies all the time, but very rarely is the little company represented by a big elite law firm. Uh, <laughs> so it's it, that's just sort of an an unusual situation here. Thanks for bringing that one to us, Bill. Absolutely. That'll wrap us up for today. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. And thanks, Alex. Thanks, guys. Join us back here next week for another wrap up of the legal news. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Evan Weinberger, for joining us. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men.